Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. The 23rd talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on January 31, 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a nonprofit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. We're in Hebrews chapter 7. We've been looking at the first 10 verses like forever. We've spent several weeks talking about the wrong way to approach it and how I think we shouldn't think about what's going on in the first 10 verses. And I had already proposed how I think we should look at it. We're going to finish that up today and then press on. Let me read this section again that we're looking at so that we have that in front of us. This is part 12, paragraph 30 in my translation or chapter 7, verse 1 in your normal Bible. Now this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, was the one who met up with Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, the one to whom, in fact, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all of his spoils. In the first place, he was, by translation, king of righteousness, and then he was also king of Salem, that is, king of Shalom. He was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Insofar as he was likened to the Son of God, He remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great was this man, the one to whom Abraham, though he was the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils. Those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have an instruction in Torah to take a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, even though these have come out of the loins of Abraham. But the one whose line of descent does not come from the forefathers of these Levitical priests took a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now, here on the one hand, mortal men receive tithes, but there it offers testimony that he will live on. And in a manner of speaking, through Abraham, Levi also, the one who receives tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met up with him. Okay, well look at that section, and then if we finish that, we'll go on to the next one. So what I argued, proposed several weeks ago now, is that the way to understand what Paul is doing in these 10 verses is, as he introduced a couple chapters back, he's arguing from Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, David says, the Lord says to my Lord, So it's the only way really to reasonably understand Psalm 110 is that this is a messianic psalm. David's Lord in Psalm 110 is his son who is to come, who will be greater than he is because he's the one who's going to fulfill all the promises that God made to David in his own rule over the everlasting kingdom of God. We know him as Jesus. Psalm 110 just knew him as one who was to come who David calls his Lord. Later in Psalm 110, he says, with respect to that Messiah, I have sworn I will not change my mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it's that promise. I have sworn I will not change my mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek that Paul is focusing on. He's honing in on that. And he's trying to understand what are the implications of that? What ramifications does that promise to the Messiah have for the question at hand? And remember, the question at hand here is, why did the Messiah die? Does it even make sense that God would send his Messiah into the world? And having sent his Messiah into the world, he gets himself dead at the hands of the Romans That doesn't sound very Messiah-like, so how do we make any sense out of that? And we're in the primary argument of Hebrews. He is completely focused on a painstaking, thorough discussion of why it only makes sense 
that the Messiah, the authentic Messiah sent from God, would die on the cross. That's what he's focused on. Well, with that question in mind, Paul thinks Psalm 110 is critical to answering that question. If we understand what the ramifications of Psalm 110 are, we will understand that it makes sense that Jesus would come and die. But he builds his case bit by bit, step by step, painstakingly. And in the first 10 verses, he's only taken the first little step. And the first little step is to say, this one who was promised that he would be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, is the biggest deal in town. He's a very important person. What was David trying to say? He's trying to say that the Messiah would play a priestly role that surpasses any role that any other Jew played in their whole history, essentially. Okay, we looked at the first three verses about the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, being without father, without mother, without genealogy, being a priest perpetually. We looked at all that stuff, but now we're at paragraph 33. That's verse 4 of chapter 7. Now he looks at the historical situation back in Genesis to call out from that one of the important issues for David when he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What is he thinking? Why according to the order of Melchizedek? Well, notice who Melchizedek was, Paul is saying. Observe how great was this man, the one to whom Abraham, though he was the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils. Those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have an instruction in Torah to take a tenth from the people, that is, from their own brothers, even though these two have come out of the loins of Abraham. But the one whose line of descent does not come from them, namely Melchizedek, this man Melchizedek, whose line of descent does not come from them, he took a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises, blessed Abraham, blessed him. But he highlights the fact that Abraham was the one who had the promises, and that's important, I think, to his argument. Then he says, now without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now I think for a long time, reading through Hebrews 7, you land on the lesser is blessed by the greater, and it sounds like that should be something that you would understand. So that's something that I can park on and I can use as a point of departure. But the more I think about it, the more I realize I, Paul is not making a generalized statement of principle here. Paul is not saying that every time you have someone bless another person, that the one who's doing the blessing is greater than the one who's being blessed. That's what it sounds like at first blush. But what he's saying is, without any dispute, Abraham, who took the lesser role in this relationship in Genesis 14, is blessed by the one who is taking the greater role in this event in Genesis 14. It's these particular men in this particular exchange at this particular time where there can be no doubt about it. Abraham was taking a subordinate role and was granting to Melchizedek a superior role in this particular relationship on this particular occasion. That's what he means by the lesser is blessed by the greater. This is not some kind of general truth. It can't possibly be. I'm sure you remember the account in Luke where Mary was taking the baby, the newborn Jesus, into the temple to be circumcised and to undergo her own purification after giving birth. So there are these ceremonies that they had to perform in the temple. She's bringing the newborn Jesus into the temple, and there's this strange, weird character named Simeon who comes up and blesses Mary blesses the baby Jesus and makes it known that I can die now because I have seen the Messiah. But he blessed Jesus. Would Paul argue Simeon is greater than Jesus because he blessed him? I don't think so. That would make absolutely no sense. There's no reason in the world to think as a general principle it would make sense to say the lesser is blessed by the greater. But it makes all the sense in the world in Genesis 14. Because when we look at the context of what's going on in Genesis 14, what do we have? As I argued a couple of weeks ago, 
Abraham is returning from battle. Melchizedek, as a king in the region, comes out to greet him and to give him refreshment and to celebrate his victory. And in the process, he blesses him, which includes praising God for the victory that God has given to Abraham. And Abraham is faced with a choice there. Do I accept this interpretation of the event, that God has granted me the victory, or did I gain that victory? And what Abraham chooses to do is to acknowledge the assessment, the interpretation of that event by Melchizedek, that it's God who gave him the victory, and therefore Abraham should give thanks to God for this victory. So how is he going to give thanks to God? He'll pay a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. So notice what he's doing when he does that. He's acknowledging for the time being, on that particular occasion, in that particular instance, he's allowing Melchizedek to serve as an intercessor between him and his God. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the sense in which, in that circumstance, Melchizedek has become the greater and Abraham the lesser. And it's a remarkable thing that Abraham is doing that because even though he is the patriarch, even though he's the one who has directly received promises from God about this grand, wonderful destiny that awaits him and his seed, he nonetheless acknowledges that he's in need of an intercessor. He's not too good to not be needing someone to intercede between him and Yahweh. Well, that's his decision to do that is placing Melchizedek temporarily, provisionally at that point, in a greater role, but it's acknowledging in larger terms Abraham's recognition that, but I really have no standing with God without an intercessor. That's what David then recognizes, makes Melchizedek a very apt symbol for the Messiah who's to come and who's going to play a priestly role where he is going to intercede for everybody universally for all time, not just on a particular situation in the battlefield, not just a kind of ad hoc relationship that they form at that point, but there's somebody coming, the Messiah, who's going to be permanently and perpetually the one who will intercede for mankind between us and God. Well, what better symbol then than to take abstract Melchizedek out of this particular circumstance, this particular occasion, and say, one is coming who will be the true Melchizedek, the true and permanent and perpetual Melchizedek. So that's, I think, what he means by, now, without any dispute, the lesser Abraham is blessed by the greater. Let me skip the next sentence for a second. And in a manner of speaking, through Abraham, Levi also, the one who receives tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met up with him. Okay, how are we to understand that? For years, I just took a look at that and looked like, well, it just seems like he must have some kind of belief that any time your ancestor acts, It's as if you were acting. It's tantamount to you acting. So the actions of your ancestors are attributed to you. So since Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, then everybody who was a descendant of Abraham was paying tithes to Melchizedek. And the implications of paying tithes to Melchizedek for Abraham are equivalent to the implications for everybody else who followed Abraham. So Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Abraham, as we know, is the greatest of all of the people of God because he's the patriarch of everybody. So he's greater than every Jew. Therefore, every Jew is inferior to Melchizedek. I think a lot of people have interpreted this text this way. Again, that's not what he's saying. I don't even think Paul thinks that Abraham was absolutely inferior to Melchizedek. I don't think that's what he's saying. If you had to pick the two, if you were at the end of time and this was heavenly idol or something like that and we're voting, are we going to vote for Melchizedek or for Abraham 
as being the greater in the history of salvation and in God's history. Obviously, Abraham is greater than Melchizedek. There can't be any question about that. So it's only on a particular occasion where Abraham submitted to the status of Melchizedek as intercessor, where Abraham becomes the lesser and Melchizedek the greater. But in absolute terms, Abraham is clearly a better individual, a superior individual in the purposes of God than Melchizedek could have ever dreamt of being. And then furthermore, what's the sense in which people who are descended from Abraham are inferior to Abraham? Is Jesus inferior to Abraham? I don't think so. That doesn't make any sense. He was in the loins of Abraham, arguably, when Abraham was paying tithes to Melchizedek. Paul clearly is not arguing that everybody who is ultimately becomes a descendant of Abraham is somehow inferior to Abraham, because that's not true. But what he is saying is, who is this guy Abraham who deemed it appropriate to take a subordinate role to an intercessor between him and his God. Who was this guy who did this? It was no less than Abraham himself who did that. Well, if Abraham himself took that subordinate role, what does that say for all the Levites, all the people of Israel that come after him? Clearly, with respect to the promises, remember I mentioned he mentions the one who received the promises. Clearly, with respect to the promises, no Jew is any greater than Abraham. So with respect to the promises, then everyone coming after Abraham is his lesser. And yet the greatest of them all, Abraham, played this subordinate role, put himself in this subordinate role to this man, Melchizedek. So what Paul is saying is, so do you see, do you see how rich and ripe that historical circumstance is for turning Melchizedek into a symbol of one who is not just, as the story goes, greater than Abraham, but is truly and always and eternally and perpetually greater than Abraham and anyone else, namely Jesus, the Messiah, who is going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I skip the fifth sentence there. I think that's completely parenthetical, and I Put it in parentheses. Now here, on the one hand, mortal men receive tithes, but there it offers testimony that he will live on. The here, mortal men receive tithes. I think he's talking about Levitical priests are mortal men who receive tithes. I think he's talking about Melchizedek who received tithes from Abraham. is just a mortal man. All of the aforementioned that he's been discussing in this argument, are just mere mortals. But there, and by the there he means in Psalm 110, but there in Psalm 110 it offers testimony that he, who's the he? The one who David calls his Lord, the one who Yahweh addresses in the psalm and says, I have sworn I will not change my mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And it's that claim that he has in mind when he says it offers testimony that he will live on. By live on, I think he means he will never die. Unlike the mortal mortals that we've been talking about who will die, this one will never die. But I say that's parenthetical because it doesn't advance his argument at all. It doesn't contribute to his argument at all. It's just kind of an aside. He's going to make a big deal out of that in the next paragraph. But in this paragraph, it doesn't really matter whether it's there or not. He's just reminding us of the significance of this person that he's talking about, the Messiah priest that Psalm 110 is promising. Okay, let me pause there for any questions or comments you might have on that. Jack, at the beginning, you mentioned that Melchizedek was an intercessor for Abraham between Abraham and Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Would you explain a little bit more about how he was the intercessor and why Abraham felt the need for one at that point? I don't know why he felt the need for one, but what I mean by that is Melchizedek comes and says, Abraham, the God Most High has given you a great victory. He's the one who's given you the victory. And then in response to that, Abraham pays tithes. That is, he gives a tenth of the spoils of the battle, and he gives that to 
the temple. He gives it to the God Most High or the service of the God Most High in and through Melchizedek, right? So that's what I mean by an intercessor is that he's acknowledging that by giving it to Melchizedek, he's giving it to the God Most High. Now, I have to assume that the nature of those tithes, that's a religious act, a symbolic act, where he's basically acknowledging, yes, God, the victory belongs to you. The victory belongs to you, and all that you've given me belongs to you. Because my understanding is basically a tithe is a representative portion of something that is basically claiming everything that I have belongs to you, God. And by giving you a tenth, I'm acknowledging that, that everything comes from you. So why would you think that giving it to Melchizedek is giving it to the God Most High? Why would you think that that is giving it to the God Most High unless you're acknowledging Melchizedek in that circumstance, a legitimate intercessor? So I guess I always thought that Abraham was giving the tithe to Melchizedek, but you're suggesting that he's giving it to God through Melchizedek. Yes. Okay, I missed that piece. Yes, I think so, yeah. Because to give him tithes is to allow him to function in his priestly office, his priestly function. I've got a couple of follow-up questions to that. Is uh, First off, was giving tithes tenfold, was that customary in the ancient polytheistic world? I don't know the answer to that. I would assume so, but I don't actually know. And second, how did that become incorporated into the Mosaic law? Well, God incorporated because God revealed it to Moses. But are you asking, why would God take a heathen practice? Yeah, because obviously there's Abraham giving a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek, and then there's there's obviously the most famous example of Jesus saying that the Pharisees keep the Mosaic practice of giving a tenth of their earnings, yet they neglect the other poor practices of the law. Right, yeah. Well, if I understand what you're asking me, there are a number of things in the... That shocked me. I I remember back in college where in Western Civ, I was learning how much you have parallels between the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, and various practices in the religions of the ancient world. The skeptics toward the Bible, of course, make a big deal out of that in that they're saying, well, the Bible's not the Word of God. This is just one more man-made religion like all the other man-made religions in the ancient world. And in fact, not only is it a man-made religion, but it, they're kind of plagiarized. You know, They just borrowed all these practices from the surrounding peoples, and there's nothing original here. And so the idea that God actually descended from on high and revealed a pattern, a covenant, an instruction to Moses on Mount Sinai, that's just garbage. Obviously, he didn't do that. This just evolved as a religion in the culture of Israel, and then they went back in revisionist history and told us a story about how God came down and revealed this to them. But this is not revealed religion. This is just another human artifact. And that's not the way I'm going. Right. And nor am I. I think I've told this story before, but it was really a very dramatic moment for me. I was in Jerusalem, downtown Tel Aviv, where they had an archaeological dig, and an Old Testament professor, Bruce Waltke, was our guide. And we had gone to this site, and we were looking down, and he pointed out, showed us the place where you had the Holy of Holies, the pillars that delimited the Holy of Holies, and those pillars that delimited the holy place, and then the region that was the outer court. And he said, well, this is a Philistine temple. And that was a shock to my system because I was still of the mindset that everything that you have in the Old Testament, in order to be revealed, it has to be completely and totally and absolutely unheard of, new, unique, and so on. But he gave what I thought was a very, very plausible explanation for that. He pointed out a big difference between what would go on in the Philistine temple and the temple in Jerusalem. In the Philistine temple... There in the Holy of Holies, if you were allowed to get into the Holy of Holies, what would you see? You'd see a shining gold statue of dog, not D-O-G, D-A-G, of dog, the god of the Philistines. Remember that account of Samson where they put the Ark of the Covenant in their temple 
and they keep coming in. The statue is on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. That's because they had taken into the Holy of Holies and God had plopped their statue down on its face to do obeisance to him. What do you find in Jerusalem? It is forbidden to make a graven image of God. You won't find a statue to Yahweh in the Holy of Holies in in Jerusalem, in that temple or in the tabernacle. You find the Ark of the Covenant instead. So he argued that, of course, you have this correspondence between the temple that God had the Israelites build and the temple of all of the peoples in the surrounding regions because if you wanted to say something through the religion that you establish for them, you're going to have to create that religion in the cultural forms that are familiar to them, that will be meaningful to them, that will say something to them. And when you want to make a point, then you deviate from all the other religions. Like, for example, not having a graven image of the God in the Holy of Holies. That's a striking difference. And what you put there instead is intended to make a point. It's intended to say something. So it would get lost on us, but to them, it would be very striking how different what God is expecting of you than all the other religions around. So I think the same is true of the offerings, the sacrificial, the animal offerings. We know that the ancient world all offered blood offerings, animal sacrifices to their gods. That's not unique to the Hebrews. But there were some very significant differences The Greeks cut the throat of the animal and had the blood drain into the ground. In Israel, you collected all the blood in a bowl or a cup, and then you had prescribed things that you did with the blood. Very different, and it invites the question, why? What's going on? What are we doing here? What are we talking about here? So I think the same is true of the tithe. We're tithing to a different God in Israel, but we all know what we mean when we tithe, whether it's to a heathen to some heathen god or to the god of Israel. We know what it means to tithe. We're making the claim, I accept that everything you have given me belongs to you. Something like that. I wonder if we could unfold the concept of intercession in this scenario because Abraham had dealt directly with God on numerous occasions. Or God had dealt directly with him. No intercessor, no intermediary. And now all of a sudden... He acts as if this priest is going to do something for him that he can't do for himself or that God hasn't already done on numerous occasions. My mind is saying, well, maybe it was an object lesson that Abraham acted out in front of people as if to say X or to remind people of his place, but they describe it as intercession. Well, they don't use the word intercession. That's my word. And don't make too much of it. By intercession, I don't necessarily mean everything that would be implied by intercession. Um, I just mean an intermediary who he's acknowledging a stand-in for God in relationship to Abraham. That's the sense in which I'm using it. And as a stand-in for God, what is he supposed to accomplish? I can sort of get the Levitical priesthood where you come in with your confession and your sacrifice, and the priest says, let's pray. You know, he does this, and he makes this offering to God, and by the power vested in me, by the law and the temple, God will have mercy on you. Amen. Now go and sin no more. Yeah, that's not what's going on with Abraham and Melchizedek. I don't think there's any propitiation involved or anything, or atonement or anything of the sort. All he's doing is saying thanks to the God who's giving him the victory, but he's saying thanks to the God who gave victory through Melchizedek. But I think that's the only thing we can know from the account. Because he can't say it directly? Well, it's not that he can't, but I think that's what Paul is talking about. Look how remarkable this is. There's this Jebusite or whatever he was, this Canaanite priest, and Abraham is choosing to submit to him as an intermediary stand-in for Yahweh, the God Most High. Look how remarkable that is. And that's why David, seeing that as remarkable, says that's the kind of priest the Messiah is going to be, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, somebody that even Abraham would not be afraid to let stand in for God. Is there any possibility for what it would be worth where Abraham would look at Melchizedek and say, you are doing God's work, let me help you. And then by giving him this tithe, he's acknowledging you are doing God's work. Certainly that could be. I don't think we can know that much from the text. That's possible. 
But I think we need to know more. We have to have more information to know that that was part of his motive. When we start using words like intermediary or stand-in and whatnot, I'm thinking, this is Abraham. It's weird to try to put those two, his okay. existential experience with the Lord Most High, okay, but coming you see, to him, talking to him, doing this stuff with him, and then now making sense of, well, except today. Today I'm going to choose to put you as in some sort of intermediary or um, logical recipient of the tithe I would give to God. What did he do with tithes anyway? Did Abraham ever do this? Did he have his own temple in his backyard? Did he just go around doing good things? I assume in Salem there was a temple. And we assume what was done with the wealth? They made, they got new windows and gold-plated the... They didn't take care of the widows and orphans who may have been... Well, I I don't know. ...widowed an orphan in the back. That could be too. That could be part of it too, Um, yeah. Okay, I have to work on that. Isn't this occasion-specific? Yes. Yeah, that's my point. I think this is specific to this particular occasion. And if we absolutize it, I don't think we understand what Paul's saying. It's more like Jesus' baptism. Did Jesus need to be baptized? No. Right. But here's John the Baptist telling the Pharisees, you guys need to get in the water. They don't want to get in the water, and Jesus gets in the water in support of John. So in a way, Abraham is paying tithes to Melchizedek in front of the king of Sodom, saying, you need to listen to this guy. Yeah, could be. That could very well be the motive. Like I'm saying, I don't think we know enough to know that that was his reasoning. But, but yeah, Jesus' baptism is a great example didn't Jesus subordinate himself to John the Baptist on that particular occasion? Well, yeah, he did. Does that mean Jesus is lesser than John the Baptist? Absolutely. Don't think so. <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. Okay, let's press on then. Now, as we get to part 13, there are some key concepts that I think we have to keep in mind and understand in order to understand this whole next section. The first one is, there's a Greek word, teleos or teleosis. Normally, I have left it untranslated in my translations, but it occurs right off the bat in the first sentence of paragraph 34. This would be 711, verse 11. So then, if teleosis, I translate it, if the fulfillment of its purpose, but I'll get to my translation in a second. It's literally, if teleosis was attained by the Levitical priesthood, now the people were made subject to the law on the basis of it, why is there yet the need for another priest to arise who is in accord with the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so what does he mean if teleosis was attained by the Levitical priesthood? Understanding that is a key to understanding the whole argument for the next several verses. Teleos comes from a Greek word telos. And telos is the word that describes the end final purpose of something it can mean all kinds of things. Aristotle famously says the telos of an acorn is an oak tree. That is, what is it that an acorn is intended by the structure of biology and the structure of reality? What is an acorn supposed to become? What is it purposed to become? I mean, even if you remove purpose from it, what is it bound to become? It's bound to become an oak tree. So teleos is somebody who's in a position where they've attained their telos. If you've attained your telos, then you are teleos. So a little critter of a human being, what does a little critter of a human being do? They become an adult human being. When they are an adult, they are teleos. It's often translated mature for that reason. A little human being becomes a full-grown human being, and they're done becoming what they're supposed to do. They've reached their telos biologically, so they are now teleos. So teleosis is the state or condition that you're in when you are teleos. It's the state or condition that you're in when you have reached your final end that has been purposed for you. Well, in this case, it's not a person that is teleos. It is an institution, or I practice, I guess I should use the word practice. If teleosis was attained by the Litovical priesthood, why is there yet the need for another priest to arise in accord with the order of Melchizedek? So what is teleosis? It's the state of having reached some telos. What telos do we have in view here? It can be anything. Any purposed end is a telos. So what's the purposed end of the Levitical priesthood? That's the question. Why, as a worshiper, do I take my lamb into the temple 
hand it to the priest, let him cut its throat, take the blood, and do stuff with it and burn the carcass. Why do I do that? What is my purpose? My purpose is I sinned, and in coming to confront the reality of my sin and my sinfulness, I recognize that I am a person in need of mercy. I want mercy from God. And I know that I am in no position to appeal for mercy on my own. I need a priest to intercede for me and to appeal to mercy on my behalf. And according to the Mosaic Covenant, this is the procedure that I need to go through in order to make that appeal to God for mercy. I take this animal and I take its blood and I do this with it and we burn this part and we smear this part on the ear and all the stuff that you do with that. Well, God prescribed that practice in order to make your appeal to God for mercy through the priest. Okay, well, Paul is simply asking the question here, why in Psalm 110 did God make a promise to the Messiah that the Messiah, you, are going to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek? Why on earth would part of his purposes be to make the Messiah a priest when you got a whole slew of Levitical priests doing the job down at the temple? His answer is, it must not cut it. It's not getting the job done. You're not reaching your telos. The telos of worship is to actually attain mercy. If you don't attain mercy through this practice, then you have not achieved teleosis. You have not achieved a state of having reached the attainment of mercy. In other words, animal sacrifices don't ever propitiate God's wrath and attain the mercy of God. They just don't. Now, he's making an incredibly radical claim here compared to what most of us have been taught to believe. Maybe not most of us, but some of us have been taught to believe. I grew up believing that in the Old Testament, how did you get mercy? You brought animal sacrifices to the temple, and you got mercy through those animal sacrifices that you brought to the temple. And that was just hunky-dory. That was just fine. That was great. That did it. That did the job until Jesus came along. And then God said, well, now that Jesus has come along, we're going to change the practice. You don't bring animal sacrifices to the temple any longer. You acknowledge the sacrifice that I have provided, the death of Jesus, and you trust in that sacrifice, and that's how you deal with sin in your life. And that's how you expect mercy from God, is through Jesus now. So the rules have changed. So now the wrath of God is propitiated through faith in the death of Jesus, but go back a few hundred years and that wasn't true. Then mercy was achieved in a different way. Here's how radical Paul's claim is. No, that never, ever achieved mercy. That was never why and how anyone ever became fit for divine mercy and eternal life. Not for anybody, anywhere, anyhow. Which explains then why John the Baptist, in seeing Jesus, says to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. There is always, for all time, before there even was a cosmos, before there even was a creation, it was God's purpose that the one and only offering, if you will, that would ever bring about true and authentic propitiation and bring about a propitiation of God's wrath, it was Jesus' death from the get-go that was the only thing that was ever going to make that possible. Okay? So we're going to see in a number of ways he makes that point, but that's the point he's going to be making coming up, and he'll use the word teleosis a number of times, and that's what he means by that. The Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices, they didn't ever achieve teleosis. They didn't ever actually bring an objective propitiation of God's wrath. Something else had to do that because it wasn't these animal sacrifices. Therefore, it makes all the sense in the world in Psalm 110 that he says to the Messiah, I will not change my mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I've got a whole different way that I'm going to deal with sin that has nothing to do with the thing I told the Jews to do in the Mosaic Covenant. I have a whole different thing that I want to put in place. And you're at the center of it, Messiah. You're the priest of that whole new and different thing. Okay? Questions on that? 
Jack, on the sacrifices in the Old Testament, I guess the question I have is, when do we see mercy? Okay. Okay. So okay. to me, it seems like that happens when my life is over or mm-hmm. on Judgment Day, however you want to think of that. Mm-hmm. So Christ was God's way of making mercy possible, not only for us today, but also for the people in the Old Testament. Right. Right? And so bringing the sacrifices and whatever, you didn't receive, it seemed like the sacrificial offerings and things was a test of where the person's heart was. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing this? Are you doing it for the right reason or are you doing it for the the wrong reason? still seems to me it's a question of where's your heart, whether it's in the Old Testament or it's in the New Testament. But the mercy part, I'm not sure in the Old Testament, how would you think of when I'm going to receive mercy from God? You understand what I'm saying? We're looking at it from an entirely different picture. That's right. Yeah, what I'm going to argue, and we'll see several different kind of subtle clues in the text as we go through here, that I think the best way to understand Paul's perspective on this is you don't receive mercy until the judgment seat, not in any actual meaningful sense. Like the great saint Yogi Berra said, it's not over till it's over, right? So my destiny is not set until my destiny is set. Now, I can know right now that when my destiny is set, here's what it's going to be. I can have confidence that because of Jesus, I'm going to get eternal life. Not because I already am qualified for eternal life and already have eternal life, but because I know what God has promised And I know the promise of Jesus that anyone who comes to him will not be forsaken, will not be turned away. So as a follower of Jesus, I can have utter and complete confidence that I'm going to receive eternal life when the day comes for eternal life to get handed out. But I don't have eternal life until that day comes when it's going to get handed out, and that's at the judgment seat, whatever and whenever that is. And arguably, the whenever that is could rightly be seen as at the end of my life, because there's certainly a sense in which my fate is sealed. We're going to see a passage where he says it's given to man to die at a particular time, and then comes judgment. And I think what he's saying is, we're given this life to live that ends with our death, and then we're judged on the life that we lived prior to our death. Then we will be judged. So arguably the end of my life as the point at which is my own personal judgment day, if you will. But that's going to get worked out in history in terms of when is judgment day in history? Well, for most of us, it's going to be when Christ returns. Because when Christ returns, the trumpet is blown, and those of us who are in Christ are raised up. That is, as John 5 puts it, those of us who hear his voice are raised up and we meet him in the air. Well, I wouldn't be getting out of the grave if he hadn't already judged me to be somebody who's going to receive mercy and escape the wrath of God. So in effect, that becomes judgment day. There's more history after that, and so there's going to be a judgment to come after that somehow for people who who aren't even dead yet, who are still part of this story. But for us, who are either alive or dead when Christ returns, that's the day of decision for us. So he's going to talk several times in this paragraph about Jesus will be alive at the end, at the very end. He, unlike the Levitical priest, he's not going to die. And the argument he's going to be making is there might be some Levitical priest that I think is a right powerful animal offerer or something like that. And I might think, well, surely the way he does the ritual, that ought to work. And then I go on living and that Levitical priest dies. Now what? He's not going to be there to intercede for me when it counts, at the time that it counts. Jesus is going to be there when it counts, at the time where in history, in objective reality, my eternal destiny is decided. He, as my intercessor, is going to be alive to intercede for me at that point. Which, by the way, just pay attention as we go through here. Look how much weight, every time he turns around, Paul is putting on Jesus' intercession, not on his death. His death is not unimportant. That's a big deal. But every time he gets a chance to argue about the superiority of this new covenant over the Mosaic covenant, it's about how superior Jesus as a priest is who can intercede for us. 
That's where, always where he goes. And I think we don't understand that because we have a traditional view of the atonement that places all the emphasis on the magic of his death and not on the effectiveness of his intercession for us. Think about his argument there for a second. I'm sorry, I'm dreaming of consciousness now, but think about his argument for a moment. Jesus is going to be alive to the very end. Under the traditional view of the atonement, why should that matter? I believe in Jesus' death. I'm washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. My sins are forgotten, are moved as far as the east is from the west. I'm fully and completely justified. Jesus can die and go away as far as I'm concerned. I'm good, right? But that's not what Paul's thinking. Paul's thinking it makes all the difference in the world that when it comes time for me to be judged, he is there as my intercessor. So it's Hebrews that made me rethink completely my view of the atonement because he just does so many things that are unexpected from a traditional perspective. He says so many things that just don't make sense from a traditional perspective. And one of them is all of the emphasis on his intercession. And I totally got lost in my own ramblings. And did I even answer your question? Okay. Okay, so teleosis, we good with that? The next concept that we need to keep in mind is the Greek word is namas. I will typically translate it covenant. Sometimes I might translate it law. But what he means by the namas here is the Mosaic covenant. But in this whole section, he means the Mosaic covenant in a very, very narrow kind of sense. And it's important that we understand that because it would be really easy to misunderstand the implications of Paul's argument here if we think he's just dissing on the Mosaic Covenant altogether. But throughout the Mosaic Covenant, it's obsolete, it's irrelevant, it's no good anymore. Now we have a new covenant. That's not what he's saying. And when we get to Jeremiah, I'll suggest that there's, I think, a preferable way of reading the new covenant in Jeremiah that supports what I'm about to say here. Throughout this whole section, the question at hand is not the relationship of me as part of the people of God with God. The question throughout here is, am I going to get wrath or am I going to get mercy? We are completely and totally preoccupied with propitiation. Is that a word I need to define for you, propitiation? You younger people may not know this. Those of you a little older saw the movie Joe versus the Volcano where this guy who has a brain cloud decides that he's qualified to go and be given as a sacrifice to the volcano god in some South Pacific island. And so he goes, and they're going to throw him in the volcano, and that's going to appease the wrath of the volcano god. That's propitiation. That is, when someone is given something that is delightful to that person, so that the delight eclipses the wrath mollifies the wrath, diminishes the wrath, sucks the energy out of the wrath, that's propitiation. So at the judgment, if God is fuming mad at me, I'm in trouble. Because if he's fuming mad at me, Jesus could intercede all day long, and it's not going to do any good, because when it comes time to decide what to do with me, it's going to be death and destruction and wrath and getting smashed. God's wrath needs to be propitiated. There needs to be something that's a delight to him that will mollify him, settle him down. Obviously, this is metaphorical. But something needs to happen to make his wrath irrelevant to him with respect to how he's going to deal with me. So in this section, when he talks about the covenant or when he talks about the wrath, he's focused on those portions of the Mosaic covenant, those instructions in the Mosaic covenant that instruct the Jews, instruct the people of God, how do you deal with sin in your life? What are you supposed to do? Well, they had these rather elaborate rituals of a number of different sacrifices that they could make to God, sin offerings of various kinds that were propitiatory in nature. And in fact, the Day of Atonement was the most spectacular propitiatory offering that was offered in Israel, and that could only be offered by the high priest once a year. But not all the offerings are propitiatory. You have thank offerings, you have various wave offerings in various contexts. Some of them are just kind of celebratory. Some of them are just acknowledging God, praising God. But some of the offerings are propitiatory in nature. 
They are a way of symbolically coming before God and saying, God, I need mercy. Have mercy upon me. I have sinned. I am unworthy. I deserve to be smashed. But would you give me not what I deserve, but bless me instead? What changes between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant is not the covenant wholesale. What changes is how you are instructed to deal with sin. So my argument would be that what Paul is at least implicitly saying through this argument throughout this whole section is there comes a time where the part of the covenant that instructs us how to deal with sin changes, that the old system of animal sacrifices becomes obsolete and what's put in place instead is a way of dealing with my sins through the intercession of the Messiah priest himself who has offered himself for the sins of the world in order that that might be a propitiation of God's wrath for me. That's new. That changes. That's a transformation of the covenant. When we get to Jeremiah, one of the questions that you have to ask about Jeremiah is, because Jeremiah is that promise there, that prediction in Jeremiah has not even happened to this day. It's still in the future. It's going to take place in the future. In the day when that prediction comes about, will the Jews, the house of Israel and the house of Judah on that day, will they keep the Mosaic Covenant or will they not keep the Mosaic Covenant? Well, he talks about the law being written on their heart and everything. Is the law that's written on their heart the Mosaic Covenant written on their heart? And I've kind of gone back and forth on that and looked at it from a lot of different angles, but I think I I recognize what's going on now. Yes, it's the Mosaic Covenant, that's written on their heart. They are going to keep the Mosaic Covenant, but it's a transformed Mosaic Covenant. It's a Mosaic Covenant that no longer offers the animal sacrifices as propitiatory offering because they recognize that the one propitiatory offering that counts has already been offered, the offering of Jesus. And so there's that transformation. That's what makes it, I think, a new covenant. And that's why Jesus, in the upper room, holds up the wine and says, behold, the blood of the new covenant, which has been shed for many. Because he's identifying that his death is somehow central to the transformation of the covenant that God made with his own people that somehow transforms the Mosaic covenant into a new covenant. So if you understand what I'm saying, it's both new and not new at the same time. It's the same old Mosaic covenant on the one hand, So the Sabbath is the same, the eating kosher is the same, the festivals are the same. Most of the things in the covenant are still intact and very much a part of the terms of how you as the people of God are to honor your God. But there's one big piece right smack dab in the middle that's been transformed. But we no longer count on the animal sacrifices, even if we offer them. We're no longer trusting in the animal sacrifices to be the basis of God's mercy, no longer, okay? (laughs) Bye.